0: Irene Dunn, uh, who sang all those Jerome Kern classics in uh, in Showboat, then leads them in singing Solidarity Forever. What Robert Penn Warren saw in Huey Long, uh, Martin Scorsese, who was the director who made The Irishman, uh, saw in in, in Jimmy Caffa, Uh, you know, this kind of complex thing where good deeds and bad deeds are inextricably linked to the guy.
1: That's our guest, Harold Meyerson, editor-at-large for The American Prospect. Harold writes some of the best political analysis around, but every so often he'll drop a column about a film. And in fact, it was a recent piece he did on Mank that prompted us to invite him on the show. But it turned out that what Harold really wanted to talk about was When Tomorrow Comes, a 1939 film that neither Elise nor I had ever heard of, but that Harold insists is one of the most pro-labor films ever released. He also has some interesting insights into The Irishman, Martin Scorsese's 2019 film about Jimmy Hoffa. So, no Mank discussion today, we'll do that another time. Here's Harold Meyerson on When Tomorrow Comes and The Irishman. Welcome to Labor Goes to the Movies, Harold. Appreciate you being here. Uh, before we get into our discussion proper, we have a question that we ask all of our guests, and I'm going to turn it over to Elise to uh, to pose the question. So, Harold,
2: what is the first movie that you remember at the youngest age when you were?
0: Whoa! Wow! Yeah. Oh, I I think as a little kid boy that's a good question i mean it was probably it was probably a disney movie uh um uh, you know whatever the disney movies of the mid-1950s were when i was like five years old uh, uh I, I i'm not really i'm not really sure okay
2: go uh, older go a little older you know go to the, like you know preteens or teens
0: I'm not really sure I can, can answer that. What I can answer, uh, uh, and this gets into my perverse film background is, uh, I was a, a college student at Columbia, uh, in New York from 68 through 72 when a lot of stuff was going on. But one of the things that was going on was, uh, before there were, uh, uh, you know, revival uh you know you could see things online or uh, on disc or whatever uh new york was full of little independent theaters that were showing foreign films and old films and two things uh th- th- this was sort of the high the high point of the rediscovery of the marx brothers and i remember sitting in the thalia theater for the first time watching horse feathers and almost falling off my seat during <laughs> the rowboat scene uh yes Yes. Uh, when Grato says, was that you were the duck to uh, uh, Thelma Todd. And all of the Buster Keaton movies were suddenly being resurrected after having been, you know, no one had seen them for 40 years. And the Elgin Theater, long since gone, uh, which was at 8th Avenue and 19th Street, was showing them all. And I kind of lived there for like three weeks to watch uh, Keaton movies over and over and over again. So, uh, I think that was when I really, uh, you know, got into, into movies, but this, that that's a longer, more complex story about how I got into movies.
1: Good answer. How It probably explains our connection because my, my grandparents lived on East 68th street. And but once a year I would go down there and I would spend, and this was from fairly early. I don't know if I'd have been there when you were there, it was probably early seventies, I would, if, and you know this, if you timed it just right, you could start going to those, you know, those art houses, like at 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, you could get like eight, 10 movies in over the course of a day. You had to wow. hustle
0: my i i've often said my proudest day uh it, of the four years i spent at columbia I had nothing to do with columbia <laughs> i needed a really good working knowledge of the new york subway system to yep, do yep. What you just you just said uh uh chris and uh uh i did see seven movies in one day and
1: that's, that's a good that was, day brother that's that a good day a, that that was the apogee of, uh, <laughs> of my film going I I think your education was was uh, well spent. Is the-
0: no, it was. I mean, it you know it mixed with the Columbia, uh, you know, basic read the basics of Western whatever, and it it kind of fit into that. I thought so. There you go.
1: All right. So we have three films on our list to talk about. My guess is that we'll probably only get to uh, two. Uh, we definitely want to get to uh, the two that people have probably heard about are. Mank and the Irishman. Uh, and But there's one that um, folks have probably never heard of. And I have to be honest, I had never heard of uh, this next one until you told me about it. In fact, Harold, I went to my labor film Bible, Tom Zaniello's Working Stiffs, Union Maids, and Riff Raff, an expanded guide to films about labor. And this film ain't listed there either. So right. it's called uh, when Tomorrow Comes, it's a nineteen thirty-nine Universal melodrama. I think you called it a, a women's weepy, which was an actual genre. It was uh, oh. It stuck, oh yeah, oh yeah. And it starred Irene Dunn and Charles Boyer, these are stars, right? right. Uh, right. So why is it that and at least you've never heard of it, right? No, never. So Gosh. so how and I used to, you know, I see I've seen a lot of films from the thirties never heard of it never seen it what's the story
0: well let, let let me kind of explain its obscurity first just at least as far as labor and movies is concerned um if you look at the credits no one in his right mind would look at the credits and say oh this is a serious pro-labor movie um irene dunn and charles boyer uh, were uh, known for starring in romantic vehicles or uh, sometimes screwball comedies. Irene Dunn was an accomplished musical star. She had played the female lead in Showboat, the nineteen thirty-six Universal uh, film Showboat, singing classics. Uh, you can't help loving that man of mine, and you know uh, the, the the usual stuff. She herself was quite conservative, a devout Catholic, went to mass every morning, a registered Republican. Uh, whom uh, Eisenhower, when he became president, appointed as an honorary ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, uh, and and the credits don't suggest any particular union background. It was uh, uh, written uh, by, uh, uh, what was the name? Dwight Taylor, Taylor, Dwight Taylor uh, whom, whose other main credits are the Astaire Rogers musicals, which are fine, no one ever actually got into the plots of the Astaire Rogers musicals, which he was handed. Um, uh, John Stahl, the director, had directed a number of, uh, rather affecting with an A, I mean, emotionally powerful movies in which women are victimized, uh, you know, the the long-term lover of a married man who can never actually, uh, you know, spends all of her life sort of lurking around in the shadows as a result. So, you, you know, there's, you know, and the main thing is that shortly before this movie came out, there was a massive romantic hit with, uh, Irene Dunn and Charles Boyer love affair. Right. Uh, which was later remade uh, 20 years later with, uh, Carrie as an affair to remember with Carrie Grant and uh, Deborah Clark. Um, uh, anyway, it, it just, you know, you would never think to look at that movie for anything related to unions. It it just, you know, I, I can understand why it's not in the directory. And yet, it, it's in some ways the most proto-pro-union, pro-feminist union movie that, that there is.
1: It's an amazing film. I got to tell you, I, I you know... I, when I was watching it, I about fell off my chair. I mean, and and we got to talk about and and let me just uh, Elise and I haven't talked about it yet, and I want to get Elise's reaction to, uh, to the film. Let me just run to you, Elise, because because uh, I, I got a bunch of questions.
2: Well, it it actually uh, made me want to go and and see what the other movies were of 1939, hmm. and there were several, starting with Gone with the Wind. <laughs> twice female oh yeah, as, yeah. as as a central character what would I could argue if if, if Skylar harris actually a protagonist because yeah she doesn't really change at the
1: end yeah uh,
2: but certainly this one and uh his girl friday right
1: oh and, my god love it love it
2: right so i'm saying it was a, what ooh, what was what about what was it about 1939 that hollywood was like this was uh the time to to Uplift and spotlight this kind of character, and then and, and last time we watched with Babies and Banners, nineteen thirty six. Flint said, Downster. I mean, women are out in the streets in a way after the Depression that even, that the Hollywood folks knew about because that's what they came from, right?
0: Right, uh, right. I, I would also add that nineteen thirty nine was the year of the Wizard of Oz, in which yep. Dorothy is certainly okay, uh, a, a a rather uh, you know. A, you know, a, a young heroine uh, who, uh, you know, sees her way through all of this. Uh,
2: all right. So here's why, here's why it's not feminist for me. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's particularly in this case of um the Irene Man film is that it's the Cinderella story. It's the working class girl who almost gets rescued in this case by the rich guy, by the prince. And so. Yeah, I'm smoking all that, but you know, I'm I'm waiting to be you know taken away by Prince Charming or Charles Boyer, which it's not a bad person to be taken away by. <laughs> right.
1: Let's 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 get Harold. Just to can you do a quick synopsis of of the story because uh, yeah. because again, most people will not have seen this film. Sure, we sure. Sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, the story. I mean, it's not. I think a all that well constructed movie because the main conflict in the plot. <laughs> only occurs in the last third of the movie. Exactly. Um, okay, basic basic story. Irene Dunne is a waitress in something that uh, you know a, a high turnover mass patronized New York restaurant. Um uh, Charles Boyer uh, comes in there and falls uh, for her now. In the first this is the first third of the movie that is really <clears throat> the political uh, thing we we also heard here Irene Dunn uh, talking with her fellow waitresses about um, you know problems that the, that they all have with their jobs. It doesn't pay enough.
3: What's the matter with you? Are you in a trance or something? You're in the wrong lane. Oh, I'm sorry, Helen. There goes my whole week's salary. I haven't had a full paycheck since Christmas. Well, that's all going to be changed tonight. But, gee, what if they just say strike and leave us out on a limb? They won't. Our demands are reasonable. Yeah. If I lose this job, it'll mean peddling, chewing gum, and lead pencils for me. I ain't a looker. Get going before somebody fires you now.
0: There's a union meeting that night.
1: At Unity Uh, Hall. At Unity Hall. At Unity
0: Hall. (laughs) uh, You know, they want a union. And uh, uh, Charles Boyer is so besotted with Irene Dunn that he kind of sneaks in to the meeting. And what he sees is a serious discussion by uh, the workforce, which is all female, uh, of of what they should do.
3: Are you married? No. Then you have no children or grandchildren.
0: No, I haven't.
3: Well, I have grandchildren. And I have to work to support them because their father was killed in a strike. Don't let a railroad you into this without thinking it over. I tell you, we can't strike. My mother is sick. I need medicine for a doctor. I can't afford to lose my job. Neither can I. I need every penny to take care of my baby.
0: Others say, uh, well, look, uh, we're we're always going to be in this position unless we get a union. And uh, they turn to Irene Dunn. What does she think?
3: I don't know what right I have to speak. Perhaps none, because in a way, I'm more fortunate than the rest of you. I have no family to support. I'm alone in the world, and I can get along on my earnings as a waitress. I can even put a few pennies aside every week so that someday I might be something else. But I've worked with you girls, and I've seen the worry and fear on your faces. I've seen you tremble at the thought of losing your jobs. I've seen your struggle to make one penny do for two. The way you skimp and save and still never have an extra dollar for a new hat, a pair of stockings, any one of a million things a girl might want. We've all heard these speeches tonight. Some of you have children, some of you have parents, aged and sick depending on you. And it's not for me or Mr. Holden or anybody to tell you what to do. I'd rather cut off my right arm than be responsible for a decision that would bring you more suffering or more hardship. But we want the right to stand on our own feet, to enjoy life, to feel like free human beings. And you can't just go on hoping for those things. That's what Mr. Holden means when he says you've got to fight. He knows nobody's gonna hand you those things on a silver platter. You've got to go in there and make them listen. And if the only way to do that is strike, then I say strike. Strike!
0: And this galvanizes the, uh, you know, all of the waitresses and Irene Dunn, uh, who sang all those Jerome Kern classics in uh, in Showboat, then leads them in singing Solidarity Forever. they do go on strike okay that's like act one uh act two uh uh, charles Boyer takes her out to some place on long island uh it 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 is revealed at that point uh, since he starts playing the piano that he is in fact a world-renowned classic pianist um and they uh you know they clearly fall in love they drive back to new york city from wherever they are on long island but a storm hits, uh, and uh, they have to take refuge in the nearest building, which, to keep Irene Dunn uh, spotless as a character <laughs> in the church, uh, they spend the night in the church, uh, we assume separately, as a huge storm, which is the symbol of their passion for each other, uh, washes over uh, everything. The next day in New York, uh, it is revealed, or actually I think it by the time they're on the street, it's revealed that Charles Boyer is actually married, uh, which is the plot complication, but this doesn't come up until 65% of the way through the movie. Uh, and it turns out he is married to a woman uh, who was losing her mind. Uh, and uh, he clearly can't have a relationship with her like he used to. Uh, so there's a conflict, you know, how does it get resolved? And then that woman has enough presence of mind near the end of the movie to visit Irene Dunn and say, look, you're hot stuff, you can get any man you want. I'm uh, going downhill, but I'm married to the only man I can have at this juncture. So lay off and Irene Dunn decides to lay off. She has a uh, uh, kind of dismal, emotional final meal with Charles Boyer and then Boyer and his wife take the uh, transatlantic ocean liner uh, back to Paris and the movie ends. Oh.
1: and, yeah. by the, and by the way, yeah. sort of as, as an aside, you know, that the workers win the strike. <laughs> well, the
0: workers, Yeah, we find out in the final third of the movie when she gets back to New York that the workers win the strike. So then <clears throat> the question is raised, how the hell did this, how and why does the first third of the movie even exist? Uh, and my theory is that, you know, I mean, the fact that, for instance, they, you know, when they are thrown together all night it's in a church you have to keep the irene dunn character exemplary spotless relatively heroic well in 1939 um you know which was still sort of the new deal uh period um organizing a union was uh kind of hot stuff and they, they i think they figured that this would be one way to make her appealing to the mass audience of the time. And the studio heads, all of the Hollywood executives knew that for this genre of movie, the mass audience was largely women seeking a romantic escape, excuse me, at the movies. And, uh, they concluded apparently. You know, making her a uh, a, a union spark plug, uh, you know, a, a leader of her fellow women workers, was uh, one way to do that. And I think this, uh, other than her leading the matrices and singing solidarity forever, the most remarkable and advanced, for lack of a better word, line in the movie is when Charles Boyer tells her why he's falling in love with her and he says
3: no but i mean i've never met a woman before who could make speeches call strikes serve pancakes and look beautiful all at the same time
0: you're beautiful you can uh, make whatever it is she puts on his table and you can lead a strike you know that is that is uh you know uh listed as a reason why the male lead can fall in love with the with the female lead uh, and appeal to a mass audience, saying that I, I that's that's pretty remarkable.
1: At, at least one of the things I'm thinking about again, just, you know, we just showed with Babies and Banners last night, and I was thinking, and Harold, you know this too. I mean, part of it is the interviews with the women uh, who were leading, you know, the the emergency brigade to support them, and it's occurring right. to me that that, that at least they would have been, you know, uh, you know, yeah. watching movies and, 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 and the, one of them talks about, you know, you don't know you can speak until you have to. And so she would have been in that space that Harold's talking about. What, 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 what are your thoughts?
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, that, that's true. That's true. And I agree. It is. It is. It's a great speech too. I mean, it's a, it's a great moment. The whole thing in the, the, the The issues that the women are bringing up are those issues today right parent care, you know adult care um and then and then she articulates, yeah, you know this is this is hard, and I'm not the one to tell you this, which is I think I, I got to give the, credit, the writer some credit on that because that's just unusual, uh, but that that those those women the the, the um the babies and banded women would have been in that audience, right, and they would have seen this and gone, yes, it's a story.
0: It uh, to get to get to your hometown of detroit uh you know after the uh successful sit-in strikes which led to the formation of the united auto workers and were sweeping the country in 1937 there were instances in which waitresses did briefly did do that in 1937 mm-hmm. the uh <clears throat> great writer murray kempton who was uh uh initially a labor journalist and uh, wrote a book about the 1930s when he was uh, during the 1950s and he recites uh some examples he retells some examples of this in which uh women uh union spark plugs in this case myra wolfgang who was Ah, uh uh, quite a quite a figure was talking about waitresses and and retail clerks in stores at the height of this, just, you know, uh, is striking all of a sudden. And it was, uh, so there was, I mean, there was somewhat briefly a kind of precedent for what we see in the movie. Um, of course we all know the fact is that. What, whatever the militants of, of rank and file women at that time, unions were generally, no, no entirely led by men. Uh, and uh, when we think we have an image in our heads of labor militants in the 1930s uh, with, ba- with babies and banners, notwithstanding, it's of the men sitting down in, uh, in uh, the UAW plants and, and walking the pickup lines. Um, and this movie pushes beyond that. This movie, I think, combines some elements of later feminism, working class feminism, with the militants of the 30s and gets a little bit advance in advance of i think where the 30s left generally was
3: well girls and boys we've seen mr carb your committee and i we presented your demands as reasonably and as fairly as we knew how mr carb listened politely showed us every courtesy and we brought you back exactly nothing
0: Nothing, not one single word of hope, nothing. Mr. Carb, we'll not compromise. You can take it or leave it. That's Carb's answer to you. Work or quit? We won't work and
3: we won't quit. We'll strike. Yeah, we'll show them. No, we won't strike. How can we strike? What chance have we got? A bunch of girls against a strong outfit like Carb. We ain't a bunch of girls. We're a union standing together. Yeah, maybe getting late together, too. We'll strike. Carb's is as good as any place. Maybe better. Yeah, I suppose you're just tickled every time you get fined for broken dishes. What about the layoffs when it's slack and the customer being always right, no matter how fresh he's been with you? I say we strike. You want to? What are you going to do? Just a moment. Just a moment, Fitz. I know how you feel. Nobody likes strikes. They mean hardships and hunger, suffering and trouble. Only sometimes... Men and women workers feel crushed and helpless. When that time comes, they have to fight hard. They have to strike.
1: I have to, I have to say the, uh, the moment when the, the um, uh, Charles Boyer character, uh, who, who was, he was trying to get into the union meeting, and they say, well, you can't get in unless you have a union card. And uh, he he sneaks in with the it's, it's, a, it's a stirring entrance of the busboys you know who come in with a band you know and we're we're there we're we're there with you with the music and 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 then interestingly then they all go to stand against the wall and and the beating you know is is the women's after that it was a it's a really I thought it was a wonderful moment of solidarity and music um, it was a very nice setup. Um, and, and the other interesting, uh, uh, point was the, the Charles Boyer character is at first suspected of being a company spy. Right. Uh, which is very, which is very interesting. Uh, So he goes from, from that. And then he turns out he's not that he's also not there to hit on the women, which is a problem that they have all the time. Uh, you know, so I think there's, there's a lot of there were a lot of really a, a lot of times you know films from that period just don't hold up well whether they're sexist or racist or uh you know and this this one you know i think it has it has a lot of, of resonance uh for for now although i'm i i was after that rousing beginning to have this whole sort of john you know it sort of cuts from 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 the union meeting to to uh, Boyer and 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 the two of them on a on a yacht, not a not a yacht, a a boat on the Long Island Sound. I was, I was, I was, oh, sorry, I don't but know if my boat. He, can, I he makes
2: a point of saying it, it's a scene. right
1: It's anyway, it's a, it's a very sort of jarring transition to go from this rousing union meeting to you know Irene Dunn, you know lying back on this. Boat. <laughs>
0: But that's what makes the union meeting so remarkable because, you know, they could have easily made the, this, the the movie, given what its central plot is without having any of that in there. Yes. Yes. Just in there because in 1939, that made her a more interesting and positive character that they assumed, I think, rightly at the time, that the audience would warm up to because uh, she she was doing what she was doing. It, it's, it's sort of its extraneousness that makes it even more remarkable than it is. It's just signaling, oh, well, we have a heroine. How do we make her uh, more compelling? Well, let's have her leave
2: it's a spell. chemical white's been buried. Right. Right.
0: <laughs> right. Well,
1: hey. like,
2: I would have thought in the 70s, you know, with the, with the women's studies rise and all that,
0: that this film would have come up. Well, again, I think no one looked at it because any film scholar looking at the credits would never conclude that this is a rousing pro-worker, pro-woman worker, pro-women in union movie. I mean, why would you?
1: Absolutely. So I have one quick question before we move on uh, to the Irishman. So the other scene that I actually really wound up liking uh, was the scene between the wife and Irene Dunn. because that... Uh that, that just could have gone in, in some really sort of saccharine ways But the thing that, and I just want to run this by you guys, it it ends, um, with, with the wife saying, uh, that, you know, by being the weaker one here, I win. Yeah. And, and I thought, huh, are they trying to say something about labor and capital? Is that just am I am I reading too much in it? I mean, it's a very. I,
0: I, 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 I think oh, we're reading yes. a little too much in it because the the wife, uh, uh, I don't really represents anything larger than herself. But again, it makes uh, Irene Dunn in some ways, more of a moral exemplar. Oh, this poor woman! Uh, she she'll have to go through life alone uh if if i uh don't relinquish charles Boyer, so i'll do it so i mean you know the whole <clears throat> by the end of the movie you know uh irene dunn the irene dunn character pays for her virtue you know that's right what make it, uh you know that that that's why a tear is supposed to come into uh the the viewer's eye at that point
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. I, I thought I was, I was, uh, I just,
2: I just want to t- talk to him a moment about the wife and, and her. Please. And the whole thing. Okay. So here's the deal. She actually is. Irene Doe's character is an ideal choice for a married man because she is independent. Hmm. Right. So a well, friend of mine. Why I asked a friend of male friend of mine years ago, why men go to prostitutes and said, because there's no attachment. You get it. And then you can leave. You got an independent woman. You can get it and you can leave. And she's not going to go, oh, oh please, <laughs> oh, <laughs> you me, don't leave me, don't me, you know. Stay in Paris. Oh, I'm not coming. That's her. That's her. And then the wife comes and says, you know, I got this, okay, because I need this. And I can't, and I can't exist without it. And so that's, I mean, that is, it, it, is, it, is what, it is what I think about when I see women who support uh, men in the midst of sexism where I'm in a, a, a union meeting and we're talking about uh, sexual harassment and someone woman says, stands up and goes, well, you know, you know, and my husband, when he first asked me up for a date, I was like, no. I mean, how many of you like, like said no the first time? I was like, it's like I to do a sexual harassment, <laughs> but it's no defense of men because that's who I'm dependent on. Right. And this woman is dependent on it. Right. He knows it as all these, all these women, uh, um, one percenters surely know.
1: Yep, got it. All right. I
2: mean, what would my mother have been if she would left my father? Right? right, right. Seventh grade education, seven kids. Where was she going go? so to go? Independence plus plus the social status it brings with it. Right, because it's an investment there. I mean, that's that class thing. It cannot be left out in this case.
1: Right. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Although one of the, one of the. Uh, you know i think i think one of the byproducts of the irene dunn character leading the strike suggests that she can go on uh without uh uh you know uh, th- this kind of uh, that's why
2: he's attracted to her
0: yeah yeah
2: with a little ditz <laughs> <laughs> who couldn't take an order he was like Mm, this one's good okay yeah yeah like yeah somebody-
1: and, and and she tells him, "No, I'm not going to go to Paris and be your bit on the side. That's not happening." It's a, no, it's great. It's great. Which makes him wonder even more. I know, right? So let's uh, let's go on to the easy one, The Irishman. So so here's the thing. I'll just set up. You know, it's been out over two years. I have not seen it, and I see all labor films. And I was thinking about, well, why didn't I see it? Well, number one, it's three and a half hours long, and and even for a hardcore movie person like me, I mean that that. That's a lot, and it it was on Netflix, so it's not like you can go to the theater and just sort of park yourself in a theater. You gotta actually sit yourself down on a couch in your own house for three and a half hours. That's a long time. Secondly, and I'll be completely honest here, I was like, do I really need to see another movie about corrupt union bosses? I mean, I mean, come on now, right? Now, Harold, you did a great piece uh, back in January of 2020, and one of the things you pointed out was that Hoffa, unlike, for example, you know, Ruther, John L. Lewis, has had three films made about him now um, where, you know, he, I mean, the other films are he gets mentioned, but three right. about him, but you have a pretty interesting argument for why Yeah, people have asked me too. They're like, Ruther was interesting. Lewis was interesting. Lots of great quotes. Nobody's made any movies about him. Why do, why do people make movies about Jimmy Hoffa?
0: Well, first of all, you know, he became kind of a figure in pop culture by virtue of his disappearance slash murder. So, right. you know, Although, you know, there was an attempt to uh, assassinate Ruther in the, in the right. late 40s and uh, shot in the arm and he couldn't really fully use his arm, uh, one of his arms thereafter. Uh, but also, Hoffa is one of these figures who is, you know, really morally complex, if not him himself, it just his life is morally complex because, you know, and I've I've been dealing with this because in my magazine, our forthcoming issue was all about how the supply chain got screwed up and we each take a different element of it. I took trucking. And (laughs) the fact is, the fact is uh, up until trucking was deregulated in 1980, uh, it was a pretty decent job with pay and benefits. uh, And that was a result of, Jimmy Hoffa, being really a brilliant organizer uh who John Dunlap, the Harvard uh uh labor uh you know expert uh said really uh, brought uh area uh organizing and bargaining to American unions uh Hoffa got a national contract that covered five hundred thousand drivers. Uh, with benefits and pay in the in the mid-1960s. So that's that's a considerable achievement. Uh that's on the one hand. On the other hand, he managed to tarnish the image of unions uh you know, uh terribly, as as Nelson Lichtenstein, the great labor historian, has pointed out, if you look at public support for unions, it drops 10 points right after his epical appearance before a, uh, a Senate committee in the late 1950s. Uh, uh, so he really presents sort of like Huey Long, one of these life stories of uh, at times moral depravity on the one hand and real positive achievement on the other. And I wrote in the piece that what Robert Penn Warren saw in Huey Long, uh, Martin Scorsese, who was the director who made The Irishman, uh, son in, in Jimmy Hoffa, uh, you know, this kind of complex thing where good deeds and bad deeds are inextricably linked to the guy. And you can't say that about, you know, uh, Ruther and, uh, and Lewis, at least not at the scale that you can say it about, uh, about Hoffa. I mean, Ruther in his personal life was this Puritan, <clears throat> uh, you know, no one ever accused Hoffa of, uh, adhering to Puritan codes.
1: Elise?
0: Good point. Yeah.
2: And I, I, I totally agree with you, Harold. I mean, he is, Hoffa makes a much more interesting and much more attractive uh, subject for a Hollywood movie for all those, for all those reasons. Um, and, and, it, and it, well, you know, we can't get the, it's, it's still a Hollywood movie. And it's in Square says it. Oh, shit. Because one of the things that they don't bring out in the movie that Hoffa was really famous for was that he remembered everybody. He would, you know, if he met a rank and file person, the next time he saw him, he'd go, hey Harold, how you doing? Chris, how's the wife? You know, and he had that kind of memory, and that everybody felt like they he knew them. And even if I and, he, and I'm I'm going to guess on this that even if he didn't remember, he could act like he did, in a way that would make them feel really accepted and acknowledged by their leader. And um, so yeah, I, I don't, I do, I mean he does. Cause I think about Walter Ruther, I thought about also Harry Bridges, Harry Bridges would be a great character. I mean, he, the same thing. He's like, you know, uh, was he English
0: or Irish? I can't remember.
1: Australia. Bridges was Australian.
0: Australia and, and, and the, you know, during the McCarthy period, the government kept trying to deport him to Australia. That's right. They never were able to do it.
2: Well, he's a character. I mean, he's.
0: Really oh
2: yeah. A and, but, but I think, I think again, this, this, I think you point this out in your article. Is that, and what you said, this maintains the whole, uh, labor unions, uh, uh, mafia goons, uh, yeah. uh, uh, stereotype that has been stamped on the labor, the union boss, right? Right. right. The boss. Right. Russian. And, and so they keep, they keep feeding it. And I, I, I was, you know, I got to the end of the movie. I was thinking, why are you supposed to say anything? Why? Why? Yeah. Why this again? And then, is, is there any evidence that Frank? uh uh was actually the person who shot him or is this is totally made up in there?
0: No, well this is this is based on a book uh called uh-huh. i hear you paint houses uh uh-huh. uh which uh an attorney who knew a guy named frank Sheeran, who had led a teamster local in delaware and uh uh had obviously been a guy with mafia connections uh, so he claimed that he was a guy ordered by the mafia to kill Hoffa. There there really isn't much evidence uh, of that. Uh, but the lawyer who wrote the book sort of spun it into this interesting story, whether or not it had a factual basis. I must say that I thought the story is weakened by the fact that the character also claims to have shot Joey Gallo in uh, in, in Greenwich Village. And provided arms, uh, uh, you know, that could have led to the Kennedy assassination. I mean, I think I, he I said, him. you know, to believe he did all this, you have to think that the mafia had a very small talent pool.
1: Uh, I mean, you also but, called them the the zealot, the, sort of the zealot of the labor movement.
0: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it keeps popping up at every every well known <laughs> violent event. So I, I I think that you know, strains credulity, and I I think, uh, in recent years. Uh, 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 the FBI people look at this thinking, uh, thinking that Hoffa was actually killed by a guy who was then a young Detroit, uh, uh, mafioso who, who apparently died in, in 2019, but, you know,
1: but, but here's the thing, right? So let's, let's set aside the truthiness because the, the bit of yeah. a dive, the bit of a dive that I did in starting with, with yours, but I mean, it, it looks pretty thin that it actually happened, but be that as it may, Elise and I were up until, you know, Oh, dark 30. You know, I didn't start watching it until like 11 last night. I figured for sure it was going to put me out. I was riveted for three and a half hours. So yeah. it, it is a terrific, I mean, Scorsese is obviously. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, this, is
0: a Marty, this is a Martin Scorsese movie and it's it's Martin Scorsese when he's, you know, one of his really pretty riveting movies. I mean, you know.
1: <laughs> I mean, the cast isn't bad either.
0: No,
2: it doesn't, it doesn't no. have Robert De Niro and Al Pacino.
0: Yeah. joe as your
1: as your lead. But but here's the thing that I wanted to say, going back to the conversation that you guys were just having uh, about Hoffa, because one of the things that you pointed out in, in your in your column was, uh, let me see if I can find it, oh, uh, about his stat- Hoffa established a report with a rank and file no other union leader appeared to possess. His appeal wasn't just in the merits of his arguments, but in his manner of speaking, abusive to critics, the establishment, the federal officials trying to put him in jail for jury tampering. Hoffa was a driver's guy. Spewing violent at authority, think Donald Trump. If Trump directed his attacks solely at wealthy elites, not minorities or immigrants, or solely and solely for the benefit of workers, I want to talk about that because I, I actually, that that seems really useful to me because I often, so often, I do not understand the appeal of Donald Trump. I mean, the man is obviously a, you know, a compulsive liar, uh, and 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 you know, I, I but. But when you connected Hoffa to him, I thought, huh, I, 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 got a little bit, I, I, I got a little bit of understanding there. So if you could spin that out a little bit for us.
0: Well, you know, there, there are times when all of us and then some of us more than others respond to, uh, you know, a guy who uh, gets up in public or a woman who gets up in public and says, screw you and screw the guys who you, you uh, you already dislike uh, and and you're speaking at that point, not only for yourself, but for all of the voiced or unvoiced resentments uh, and indignities that, you know, the people responding to you have have felt and they can't normally find figures of authority or figures in public uh, view who who can do that uh hoffa could and you know unfortunately trump can as well uh uh and so that i think creates a connection uh that can be pretty deep and of course you know the 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 mystery of why hoffa kept trying to take back the union once uh you know he was paroled uh from jail by nixon
1: specifically and, 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 Yeah, I wanted to. Maybe you're going to say this, but I'd forgotten you pointed out that he was even after he was he was pardoned by Nixon, but with a with a very special proviso, which I'd forgotten.
0: Yeah, the proviso was he couldn't have anything to do with the union until 1980.
1: Nine more years. Nine more years.
0: Yeah, Uh, which which meant that he couldn't do anything to upset his successor as president, Frank Fitzsimmons. Who just wanted to funnel money to Nixon during Watergate and and all kinds of other things. And play so, golf.
1: And play golf. Don't forget the golf. Play golf, yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, so A, he was forbidden from taking over the union. B, he got very direct word that if he kept doing this, he'd probably be whacked. So why was he doing this? That's one of the one of the mysteries here. And and I think his identification with being the president and, and the master builder, as it were, of the Teamsters was so deep he just couldn't stop and didn't want to stop. And they, and they, and they,
2: that's a parallel with uh Donald Trump. Yep.
0: Yeah. 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 Yep. I, I cannot lose. I am yeah. key. Oh, that's very and, and, that, and I alone and
1: I, I yeah. alone I alone can save you.
0: Yeah, and and you know, I I wrote that piece I think, you know, before the November a 2020 election. Uh,
1: That's right. Uh, you're That's
0: absolutely right. Right. That, uh, you know, Trump's continuing belief. I-, I think he does believe probably that he actually won or he should have won so much that he may as well have won. And therefore he won <laughs> right. uh, is somewhat analogous to Hoffa's refusal to uh, acknowledge that there was no way he could take over the teamsters. He just kept on doing trying to do it.
1: So so it's really Interesting. I mean, coming from a place where I just really didn't want to see yet another damn movie about corrupt union bosses, because you know, going back to on the waterfront, this is a story that, you know, they just love to tell. Uh, and it's got enough actual truth to it that it's, you know, it's just not completely far fetched. And yet I, you know, I, I watched this film and even watching it as a union person. It, it seemed to me to get a lot of things right right? In terms of the way that it's a, it is a club, right? That, yeah. that we, we do things for each other. There's a solidarity. There's a union brother. I mean, that, that a lot of it did feel right. Not so much the whacking and you know, that, that stuff, at least that's not my world, but thoughts, Harold, at least. Well, there's an
0: interesting contrast, I think, with on the waterfront. Mm -hmm. Uh, when you make a a center story around the East coast, longshoremen in the 1950s, you know, they don't have the positive side that Hoffa has. And so they're, they're the villains quite clearly in, in, in the movie. Um, because what the, you know, they were screwing their own members, basically, Right. Right. you know, Hoffa, you know, made his members lives significantly better. So he can be more of a protagonist, more of a morally ambiguous character. There's nothing amb- ambiguous about Lee J. Cobb in On the Waterfront. He's a schmuck, uh, and a brutal schmuck. Uh, you know. Uh, so it, it's it's really it's it's really a different uh, different kind of thing because in reality it was a different kind of thing. You wouldn't want to have been a member of the east coast longshoremen then uh and you know you could very well want to be a member of the teamsters once off got uh his master freight agreement uh through in 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 1965.
2: at least yeah uh yeah he did have a profound of the teamsters and and the teamsters loved being known as tough.
0: Oh yeah, they still do, whether they are or not. <laughs> I mean, it's part of their. It's part of their. They
2: do don't, you know what? Oh no, no I think it, it was something about the violin case. About bringing the violin case into teamster headquarters, and and they made a joke about it and said, you know, "Who's asking?" Or something like that. We we went there for a performance. And
1: oh, okay, all right. What
2: a guitar. And they were like they they made a joke out of it and they were just laughing, you know, they're like, ah, you know.
1: At least let me get you put your coalition of union uh, women. Uh, she's president of, of clue, by the way. But let me get you to oh. put that hat on for a sec. One of the things I noticed in the film and I, and I read it, some of the reviews and, and I'm, I'm not digging them necessarily. Scorsese is kind of known for 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 this. And, and, and this clearly is a very male movie. But even I was I mean, The women's roles are, well, let me, let me, let me ask you, but at least, at least for those who can't, who can't hear her fake smoking here.
2: (laughs) That's all they did. (laughs) Right. Can we stop the car? Okay. That's what we got. I was like, Hey, yeah. And even his wife, even, even Joe uh, Hoffa.
1: Hoffa's wife.
2: Yeah. Jimmy Hoffa's wife in the film when she had her little moment, it just, I didn't, I didn't buy it. It was like, eh, really? Okay you married to this man? Uh, although, although that was a really powerful moment when she was in the car. I, I thank Scorsese for that. When she goes to turn on her car and flashes there, it might blow up.
1: Right. That was a great moment. Wow, but that,
2: yeah. That's, that's, the whole, that's, the whole, that's the other part of it. The same thing with the daughter, with her sort of like psychic thing. I know what my dad is doing, but I can't talk about it. I don't say anything about it. Was that these women are there and they're in it. They have a life and they had their own thoughts, but we don't get to hear it. Even the daughter. I mean, she's just like. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, okay. And, and? and when he goes to talk to the second daughter, you know, after they're grown up and once to know why Peggy won't talk to him. It's like.
0: Th- these are the daughters of. Uh, Sharon. Frank Sharon character. It was played by Robert De Niro in, in De Niro's the movie. Right.
2: And neither, none of them have anything to say. I mean, but at that point, that daughter, the second daughter, I can not remember her character's name. He goes to talk to about the other daughter. At that point in her life, this is what she can say. "Yeah, I know, I know your shit is fucked up, okay? I know what you're going to do, what do you expect? No, she doesn't, it's just like, why does she think she doesn't want to call it? What? Come on, Martin. Get it together, yeah. And the other two wives are just, just there, literally, women, wigs on, looking pretty.
1: Harold thought to me, I had, I had an observation. <laughs>
2: Love the costumes. Costumes are perfect.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Scorsese gets that kind of detail yeah. always yeah. right. <laughs> I mean, really, really. But but
1: but I guess the thing I wanted to say, you know, after after you know noticing that, and I, I agree with you at least that one of the things, and you know, again, when we were showing with babies and banners last night, and talking to Lynn, one of the producers, and and her stories. About you know going around and try you know going to the auto workers Harold and and asking them for money to make this movie and they're like, well, there's no men in the movie. Why would we want to make a movie about women? <laughs> so, so so I have to I have to I think Scorsese can make a pretty good argument that um you know this is pretty accurate.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, if you're depicting the teamsters as such and the teamsters from uh you know in the 1960s and 70s which is pretty much the uh time span of the movies uh or the 50s 60s and 70s yeah i mean that's uh that that, that's certainly where you would at least start and uh yeah it's a male world and the teamsters because of their image um you know kind of uh became the epitome of it. It's, it's a male world. You don't, you didn't at the time, uh, think of women truckers, uh, even w- or women warehouse workers. Uh, so, uh, it's, it certainly reflects that. And if you want a more enlightened view, you gotta come back to 1939 and, uh, and when tomorrow, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ironically, uh,
1: so. Interesting. Before we we wrap up, I just wanted to to end with a little bit of talking about, um, you know, Harold, I've been reading your stuff for years and it's been really interesting for me, you know, to find that you've got this really strong and and I think, you know, a lot of really, your observations about the films, you've thought deeply about them and and obviously watched them, you know, really critically. And I'm, I'm curious about two things. One is where that comes from and the second is it's something you know it's a reason we do this podcast. Obviously, we think movies are important, you know, and and that they're not just entertaining. and they're and they we talked at least I were talking about this last night. They're not just there to, you know, hit viewers over the head and educate them with a capital e. So I, I, we'd like to get your thoughts on, on that. well,
0: it's very ironic how this evolved. I grew up in West Los Angeles in Brentwood, uh, which is was full of people in the movie industry, some of them very important in the movie industry. And, um, I grew up in this little weird, little lefty enclave. That was, I describe as an upper middle-class ghetto surrounded by otherwise upper-class Brentwood, uh, where I grew up, it was shrinks and UCLA academics and the occasional character actor. And one of the Hollywood 10, uh, uh, that was sort of the little community in which I grew up in the Hills above Brentwood. But, uh so. I'm I'm going to high school in, in the mid sixties. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, the daughter, the son of uh, James Whitmore and the daughter of James Arness who was Marshall Dillon and Gunsmoke were in my class. uh, uh there was a kid, uh, I was editing uh, the, this is Palisades high Pacific Palisades, uh, in, uh, editing the co-editing the literary magazine with, uh, named Greg Oppenheimer. We never talked about movies. That was what, her parents were into, we were into rock music, just ignored it, uh, uh pretty much as, uh, as, as possible. Um, so, you know, and putting together a literary magazine, I'm sitting next to Greg Oppenheimer, maybe for 25 afternoons. Um, he never said what his father did 30 years later, he writes a biography of his father his father, uh, conceived and produced an, uh, a, a, an obscure television show called I love Lucy. His father invented the goddamn sitcom. Uh, not a word. This wasn't where we were at. I go to Columbia from uh, uh, from West LA, Columbia University. A lot of politics going on. To put it mildly, uh, from '68 to '72. But I take a course from the film critic of the Village Voice, Andrew Saras. ah, the man okay. who brought the word "tour" uh, from France to America, who had just written a book in which he ranked, he ranked every movie uh, from 1929 to uh, 1967, when the book was written, uh, you know, like anyone could distinguish between the 33rd and 34th best movies of 1942. It's outrageous. What's he talking about? So I start going to movies. uh, And I take a bunch of courses with I I get very into movies uh in new york and i i i'm also for some reason also into old broadway musicals i i i used to say i was the only non-gay male i knew who was really into musicals uh and um so you know which, which led to among other things my writing a biography of uh the great marxist mainstream theater lyricist yip harberg who wrote the lyrics for all the songs in the wizard of oz and april in paris and it's only a paper moon but it also wrote, brother can you spare a dime i mean you know the political consciousness was there so um you know and i, I have occasionally managed to fuse you know my political interests with my um sort of pop culture historical interest uh in particular uh in in in, in movies and 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 songs and uh Uh, on different occasions, I get to write about that, which I have about, uh, uh, the Irishman and, uh, uh, when tomorrow comes and we'll see what else comes that I'll be writing about.
1: And Mank, which we'll have you back to talk about. All right. Last word, as always, uh, last word of comment goes to Elise, Sister Elise.
2: Thank you. This has been a big fun discussion. (laughs) (laughs) Yes the heavy discussion I'm making. Thank you so much uh, for bringing that When Tomorrow Comes film to to my attention and to our attention.
1: That's it for today's show. Elise and I hope you enjoyed the conversation with American Prospect editor Large Harold Myerson. You'll find a link to When Tomorrow Comes in the show notes and The Irishman is available on Netflix. This is Chris Garlock with co-host Elise Bryant. We'll go out with the trailer from The Irishman. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.
3: It's over. They're all gone.
1: Frank, it's time.
3: It's time you say what happened.
1: <sighs> Frank, I want you to meet my cousin, Russell Buffalino. Better watch. There's a lot of tough guys around here. Did he tell you?
3: Not afraid of tough guys, are you? God. I didn't think so. I was one of a thousand working stiffs. Until I wasn't no more. You got a good friend here. You don't know how good a friend you got.
1: Russell, he took a shine to me right away. After a while, he started giving me
3: little things to do. I know you read a lot of things about me. I just wanna say I'm sorry. I know I wasn't a good dad, I know that. I know that, I was just trying to, to
1: protect all of you. From what? You didn't see what I see, what I've been through.
3: A friend of ours is having a little trouble, friend at the top. Hiya Frank, this is Jimmy Hoffa. Glad to meet you. Big business and the government is on the attack! Do you wanna be a part of this fight? A part of this history? Whatever you need me to do, I'm available. Only three people in the world have one of these, and only one of them is Irish. And how strong I made you. I know things they don't know I know. He said that? You sure he said that? I'm worried nobody threatens Hoffa. I got records, I got tapes, they're done. Put you into this thing sooner or later everybody put here as a date when he's gonna go i know how you feel frank trust me i know how you
1: feel we'll bring you back after you get your car